I want to grab your Bibles and go to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. We're going to be looking at two parts uh, today. We're going to, if we could divide this in two halves. The first half we're going to look at as we step into the crucifixion of Jesus is we're going to look at a love-shaped death. A love-shaped death is going to be the first part that we are going to dive into as we read our passages this morning. And then we're going to finish with some observations on a cross-shaped life. So I want to start with this idea of a love shaped death when we think of the crucifixion of Jesus. And as I was just studying this week, as I was praying, as I was processing this passage, uh, it's kind of struck me that in some ways I feel like we forget the humanity of Jesus. We dehumanize Jesus uh, in some ways. Um, we, um, we do this thing where we identify with Christianity as a way that we identify with many things in our life, right? Um, you know, you can say, hey, I'm a, you know, I'm a Chevy guy or I'm a Ford man, right? I said both so that there's no controversy today. Um, or you can say, you know, I'm a, I'm a Buckeyes dude. I'm an Ohio State person. Or, you know, you can say things like, um, you know, I'm an Aldi shopper, you know? Um, that's, 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 my, that's my chosen uh, that, that's, that's sort of a chosen identity that I pull onto myself that contributes to the life that I live and the life that I lead. And so we can come to church and we can take all of these identities with us. We can say, I'm a Christian. And if you tell that to somebody, they're going to identify with all kinds of different things that come when they hear the word Christian or they hear the word Christianity. And yet the word Christ or the person of Christ might never get mentioned in that. It might never be considered, it actually might never even be thought of. And as we dive into this crucifixion account by John, what I want us to do this morning is I, I want us to, to read this and I want us to drink in what's going on. Um, I don't want to do a ton of commentary or unpacking of it. That's going to come with the second part. But I want to read these passages and I want to pray that the Lord would do something in showing us once again the love that Christ had for us in that he died for us. Because this wasn't just any death, right? It was a love-shaped death. It looked like something. It was planned to be something that came in the form and shape of the love of God. And it's just so important that we don't miss that, right? This is going to feel a bit like a Good Friday service as we read this passage. But there's really never a time in the life of the church, and even just going off of what uh, Pastor Jeff just prayed for us, that we don't want to consider the death of Christ. We don't want to consider, we don't want to forget to consider the cross of Christ. But even the cross of Christ, and even the Christianity of Christ, we want to be careful to not miss the Christ in that, right? So I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to read this passage very slowly. And my prayer is that the Lord would let these words come to us with a freshness and a renewed sense of his love for us in that he sent his son to die for us. Will we bow your heads and pray with me? Lord, we want to consider the death of your son this morning. 
We don't want to forget his humanity, which is what we see on display here. We don't want to dehumanize Jesus. We don't want to identify with all of the things of Christianity, but miss the Christ in Christianity. So Lord, as we read these words, as we read this account from John, Lord, I pray that these words would shape us and the love of these words would shape us uh, anew. And Lord, you would remind us of the great cost that Christ paid on the cross for our sin and the great love that was extended to us by you so that you could have a renewed relationship with us. Lord, we are your church and this is, this is our everything. This is our everything, Lord, reading about the death of Christ and this love-shaped death that came to us. So Lord, as we read, we pray your spirit would work and speak to us and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna pick up with verse 17 in chapter 19. And you remember what we're coming off of. We're coming off of this story about Jesus, all the steps, we're still in the middle of that. We're right at the end of, of, of his passion. Um, all the different steps and moments and movements that were taking place as he gets closer to the cross. And now we're almost there and it says in verse 17, so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. And if we just pause right there, we remember that Jesus was dying a death that he didn't deserve. And when they put him in between these two robbers, the placement of Jesus as being in between these two men who deserved to die was to indicate that he was the one up there on the cross with the worst crime. He was the worst of what was considered these three criminals. We remember in Isaiah 53, it says, he was numbered with the transgressors. So we see even as Jesus is up on this cross and he has this, these, this, these robbers and murderers on each side of him, that he was numbered with them. He was counted as them. He was considered by the watchers that this was somebody who deserved to die. This was somebody who had committed a worse crime than the two men who are on either side of him. He was numbered with the transgressors. Verse 19, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. And if we pause there, we understand that the leaders were incensed that the inscription over Jesus would have, would have named him as something that is what they would say was the reason why he was up on the cross claiming to be king of the Jews. So the Jewish leaders are saying, hey, Pilate, don't, don't say king of the Jews as if you're declaring something about him that we are telling you is not true and is really the reason why he's up there. Say he said he was king of the Jews. 
And Pilate, very interestingly, doubles down. And, and the language here, when Pilate says, uh, what I have written, I have written, it's like he's saying, hey, what I have written, I have written, and it will remain that way, and it will be written down in the books forever. So Pilate basically was saying, hey, I have spoken what I have spoken, and you are not going to change this, and you are not going to manipulate that. And in that very sovereign moment with, with Pilate not even realizing it, he allows this inscription to go up over the head of Jesus that was speaking the truth of who Jesus was, and not just king of the Jews, but king of the universe. Amen? In verse 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and they divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless. It was woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. And this was to fulfill the scripture, which says they divided my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. And we get this prophecy from Psalm 22:18 that describes what would happen with Jesus's clothing. It's almost a way that we can step back. And as Jesus is up on the cross, as he's just slowly dying this excruciating death, we see these soldiers in the background that have taken his clothes, removed his dignity, and they're throwing dice to see Who's the one that's going to be able to keep what was obviously a nice piece of clothing? It's almost like adding insult to injury. It's almost to give us the picture that here is the savior of the world up on a cross, undeserving between two men who were robbers and murderers. And his life is seen as being so small and so worthless that even his clothing is being bartered for by soldiers who regard him as nothing. And it speaks into the prophetic word that was spoken in the book of Isaiah that reminds us of the nature of Jesus' death, this love-shaped death and how he sacrificed for us and how he willingly went to the cross and fulfilled these prophecies. So it says in verse 24, so the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciples took her to his own home. Verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture again, I thirst. So a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. When we look at that line, it is finished. This is not, this is not something that would... Um, that would describe a defeat, right? Like, man, I am, I'm done. We are done here. I can do no more. Um, the people have spoken. 
The cross has won. My body is expiring. My breath is leaving my body. That's not what Jesus is saying. When he says these three words, it is finished. This is a victory cry. This is saying it is complete. The work of salvation now that I was sent, that was planned before the foundation of the world by God the Father, all the way back in January 3, this plan that God had put into place before time began to send his son to die the death he was to die, it's been complete. The work is done. There is nothing that can be added to it. There is nothing that is required of you. There is nothing that is required of me. He completed it. It was all him. It's all about him. The cross is all about Jesus. Inasmuch as he was the only one that could declare those words, it is finished. You and me, I didn't even finish breakfast this morning. Right? We don't finish things. There is nothing that has that level of completeness and level of victory in our lives that we, in our humanness, are able to complete. But Jesus, in his humanness, because he was fully man and fully God, was able to cry out with victory, it is finished. God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might have the righteousness of Christ, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians. Let's continue reading. In verse 31, since it was the day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. And listen to what John says in verse 35. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth that you may also Believe For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. This was a love-shaped death. He was pierced for our transgressions. We just read it when we read our passage of assurance. And what greater assurance do we need? And remembering that the Lord was pierced for the sins that should have pierced our souls for all eternity. And we stand back from that and we just go, I don't understand what kind of God would offer his son to us for crimes that he didn't commit, for cosmic crimes that we committed all the way back in the garden that we continue to commit today for sins of commission, for sins of omission that continue to pour out of our head, heart, and hands. This was a love-shaped death. Jesus emptied himself so that we could come to him the only way that we can come to him, which is empty-handed. I come before you, Lord, with nothing to give, and I don't need to give you anything because you've given me everything so that I can come to you. 
And then we finish up with verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. And that's where we end our time today, as next week we will look into the resurrection of Jesus and unpack that. But as we look at these events that transpired, Jesus up on the cross, hanging besides, beside two criminals, an unjustly death, the only unjust death in that respect that has ever existed, ever existed in humanity. He empties himself. He comes to us. The motivation is love. It's not just any death, but it was a death, death shaped by the very heart of who God is in his being, which is, which is love. And so as we look at this death-shaped love, it moves us into understanding then what is our life? What do we make of our lives as we look at the life of Jesus, who, which his life culminated on earth with, a, with a, just a love-shaped death? What does that mean for our lives? How do we look at the Christian life? What is being a Christian? What does it even look like? And to be honest, I don't know that many of us have given this a lot of thought. What is the Christian life supposed to look like? When my mom shared the gospel with me and my brother on our bunk bed in 1976, I'm getting old, right? She talked about Jesus. She talked about sin. She talked about the cross. And she talked about hell. No helicopter parenting going on in that exchange, like whatsoever, right? No, hey, good job wrestling with your sin, buddy. None of that, right? It was Jesus, sin, cross, and hell. <laughs> to be fair, she did mention heaven. Um, but in some ways, it felt like I was making a deal with God in that moment. I commit to believing in Jesus. He will save me. And then I don't have to live in fear of going to hell anymore. Now, listen, my mom didn't totally mess it up. Those were all true things. But what I didn't get a picture of was what being a disciple of Jesus looked like. So then as I started living this Christian life, even at a young age, as I stepped out, as I started growing in my knowledge of the faith, as I started hanging out with other Christians, as I started growing physically and spiritually, as all kinds of things started happening in my life, right? When I was met with any sort of pushback, when I was met with any sort of hardship, when I was met with any, any sort of trial, I felt like God was punishing me because I wasn't living up to my end of the deal. I, I didn't see Jesus as my crucified Lord, but more like my moral micromanager, right? Maybe some of you all feel that way. Maybe you feel like when you think about Jesus, when you, when you think about his place in your life, you think about somebody that's just looking over your back kind of silently and just 
mildly disapproving all the time and constantly kind of going, hold on, why are you doing that? What are you doing here? Think about this. I would, I would maybe not do that. Now, granted, is that the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to guard us and to direct us and to instruct us? 100%. But to the degree that we are not seeing Jesus through the lens of his love-shaped death for us means something's off with us, not him. Something's off with us, right? When I was hitting my marks, I felt, yeah, God is happy, and therefore I deserve to be happy because I'm hitting my marks. I didn't really know what being a faithful, what a faithful disciple looked like. I did everything I could because of that to avoid the uncomfortableness of the Christian life, the uncomfortable truths of the Christian life, which is that it's a cruciform life. It's a cross shaped life. So what I want to do is I want to make three observations on how this loved shaped death of Jesus calls us to live a cross shaped life. But it's not something that bums us out. It's not something that should cause us to shrink back and go, man, I don't think I want to sign up for that. But it should be what we understand to bring us the greatest measure of joy in our lives. This is the first thing we see as we unpack these passages, is that Jesus bore his own cross, it says in verse 17. We don't want to miss the imagery of this. This beaten and battered Jesus carrying this incredibly heavy and awkward piece of wood to Golgotha, the place of the skull, where he would die for the sins of the world. There was no victory cry yet. There was pain. And there was blood and there was agony and there were bones that were crushing underneath the weight of that cross because Jesus was a human being. So these final steps to the cross, this would have been a humiliating scene for Jesus. It would have been a humiliating scene for those who followed Jesus. The prophet Isaiah tells us that his appearance was marred beyond human resemblance. He had been beaten so bad that he didn't even look like a man, barely. People watching him who had made all of these claims, who he had made all these claims to about being God in the flesh, he looked like anything but at this time. For Jesus to bear his own cross meant that he had to withstand all of that. He had to withstand the ridicule. He had to hear the mocking voices like we sang. He had to endure the scoffing. He had to look into the eyes of those who were feeling like he had failed and that he wasn't the promised king and that all their hopes had been dashed. Oh, Jesus, you're just another leader who has let us down. It's hard for words to really capture this scene, but Jesus paints a picture for his followers of what it means in this moment to be his disciple, Luke 9, 23. And he said to all, Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, what? Let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Yes, one day we will feast with Jesus. But to get to that time of feasting with him, we must take up our cross and follow him. 
And this is one of the key elements to being a disciple. Denying ourselves the rights and the comforts and the privileges that the world prizes and prioritizes so that we become people of the cross. So that we live what's called a cruciform life or having a life shaped by the cross. This is how it's described by a guy named Pastor Jason James. I love this description he gave about the cruciform or the cross-shaped life. He said, it's a life in which the cross doesn't simply teach us that Christ has died, but it teaches us how to live. It's not just death. It's not just denying ourselves, taking up our cross and just constantly putting these things, these passions and weights and desires that don't please God to the side. It is that, but that is how we live. It's not like we do that and then step away from that and then just get to live until we have to step back into that and do that again, right? That's called a chore. And that's not what the Christian life is meant to be like. It's not just teaching us Christ has died, but teaching us how to live. Matthew 16, 25, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Loses his life, what, what does that mean? We just take our lives? No. It means that those things that we consider dear to us, all of those things that mean so much to you that aren't necessarily bad things, but they have the tendency to want to control you and become your functional savior, we lose those things. Because those things look good and they feel good. And they, they tell us something about who we are that we enjoy. And Jesus is saying, if you lose that, if you lose your life, if you lose that life that ends in death, and you receive my love-shaped death and live this cross-shaped life, you will find what you're looking for, is what Jesus is saying. James 1, 10 through 12 says, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower fails and its beauty perishes. Listen to what he says. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. But blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. There is something bigger. The cruciform life is something bigger and grander and more to be desired than all the things that we desire. Now, if you are pain avoidant, like I am, this feels like a lot. Right? And the reason why is because if you're me, I immediately see the cost as being bigger than the Christ. All of a sudden now, all I have in view is the cost. Laying aside all those passions and desires that I like, again, not all bad stuff, but I, but I gotta de-emphasize those things for giving me the, just the, the satisfaction that I'm longing for in this life. The cost needs to be considered for sure, that's biblical but Christ needs to be seen as bigger than the cost. If Christ could suffer to the level he suffered with the level of joy and the level of hope that existed in his heart, we know that we have something to endure for, right? Paul says in Romans 8, 16, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him, why? Paul says it, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Your trials, your hardship, your suffering, the stuff in your life that you cannot explain and you will not, 
It ends in something bigger than even the pain that you're experiencing. That doesn't minimize the pain, it gives greater meaning to the pain. Does that make sense? Taking up our cross is the path to joy. Why? Because it's the path of Christ. Jesus bore his own cross. Second thing we see, Jesus saw his mother in verse 26. When we consider just, again, the excruciating pain Jesus was experiencing on the cross, remember, it was, it was twofold. The pain was twofold at a minimum. The, the first was physical. And a lot has been written about crucifixion and how uh, at the end of the day, it was actually death by asphyxiation. That's really what was going on when we think about crucifixion, right? Um, they would prop themselves up on their feet to extend their lungs so that there could still be air coming into their lungs. And at some point when they didn't have the power to do that anymore, or they would come and break their bones so that they would collapse, they would just eventually suffocate to death. So this pain that Jesus is experiencing on one hand is physical, obviously, but the second pain that Jesus experienced, it was mental and it was emotional anguish since he was absorbing the sins of the world. It was the wrath of God being cast upon the shoulders of Jesus so that God's wrath wouldn't have to crush our souls. That's what he was absorbing in that moment. It was in the midst of this that John writes these words. Jesus saw his mother. Now, the few times that I've experienced out of the ordinary pain, which is not even, you know, even a percentage point close to the pain Jesus was experiencing, my first inclination wasn't to sit down with a person and just, hey, ask how they're doing. What can I do for you? How can I help you during my time of suffering? That's not typically where my mind is. And yet at the darkest hour of his earthly life, Jesus cares for the needs of his mother and provides an example for us in our own discipleship, in our own suffering. As we take up our cross, as we follow Jesus, one of the marks that we are growing and maturing as disciples is that our hearts will eagerly move toward the well-being of others, even when we're in the midst of just unbelievable trials. Broken hearts break for others. You would think that a broken heart doesn't have the capacity, but brokenness creates new worlds of compassion for others to enter into. It's interesting in that it does that. That doesn't mean that when we are brokenhearted or that when we are in just the throes of some heavy trial that we just have everything to offer somebody. No, of course not. We need to show appropriate grief, right? But something is happening in those moments, whether we believe it or not that Jesus is doing, which is brokenness expands our hearts. It, it produces this ability, maybe not in the moment, maybe down the road, where we then have something to offer somebody that speaks into their brokenness. In that moment, Jesus looked beyond himself. And brokenness gives us the courage to do that because it finally makes us aware, by the way, of other people's brokenness. Jesus saw his mother. Who will you see in your pain? When God brings you low, who will you have eyes to look up to and take notice of? And this will always be the question for 
for the church, for Substance Church. I know that for me, the people that have taken the greatest interest in me and, and in my life and in my pain are the ones who have been most broken in their own. They pursued me, they, they asked questions, they got involved, they didn't check boxes. They created worlds for me to enter into so that I could be listened to, so that I could be known, so that I could be reassured. Jesus saw his mother. Who do you need to see today? I wonder. One of the ways God redeems our pain and our tragedy is by using it to provide his redemption, his redemptive care for others. Do you know that you can create hopeful possibilities for others because of the pain God has allowed you to endure in your life? At the height of his pain, Jesus saw his mother. That's the cross-shaped life. Who will you see today? And maybe you can't see anybody today. Maybe your pain is so great that it doesn't allow you to break through the barrier of it to care for another's needs. But you can remember that the Lord is preparing you in your pain to meet somebody else in theirs someday. Some of the things Melissa and I have gone through over the years, what we didn't realize was that years later, God sits us down miraculously with other people that are now going through the thing that we went through. And we look at each other and we go, oh, okay. Now it's crystallizing for us a little bit. And you know what's so interesting is in those moments when we're, when we're able just to listen to somebody or pray with them, that's another way that God is actually healing our own pain and alleviating our own pain. Why? Because we find somebody who is sharing it with us. Jesus saw his mother. Here's the third thing, our final thing. Jesus gave up his spirit in verse 30. Jesus voluntarily laid down his life, committing his spirit into the Father's hands. Again, this is a picture of Jesus' humanity. Don't dehumanize Jesus. He was in pain, but he willingly gave up his life. He committed his spirit. He was a man who died. His heart finally gave out. His side was pierced. The blood and the water flowed out. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. Only a human being can be pierced. Only a human being can be pierced, can bleed out, can die. Jesus gave himself to us and to be his disciple means that we willingly, we give our lives away to others. And in a sense, we give up our spirit for the spiritual good of our brothers and sisters. We sacrifice our time. We sacrifice our talent, our resources. We lay down our rights. We look not only to our interests, but we look to the interests of others. If you're like me, and I know you are, this cross-shaped life, this cruciform life, it just feels so daunting. And so I step back and I say, why, why is that? Why does it feel so daunting? Because I still feel like it's something that should only happen during unavoidable moments in my life, but that it's not really my real life. Does that make sense? 
But Jesus shows us that this is our real life. Jesus shows us that the cruciform life is reality for a disciple of his. Not to scare us, not to chase us away, but to reconstruct our perspectives so that we begin to resemble who we are meant to be and how we are meant to live. Jesus reconstructs us so that we might see the thing that we long for, that our souls pant for, so that we might gain what we most desire in the exchange. C.S. Lewis wrote this, such a great quote. He said, I think we may be quite rid of the old haunting suspicion. It raises its head in every temptation that there is something else than God, some other country into which he forbids us to trespass, some kind of delight which he, quote, doesn't appreciate or just chooses to forbid, but which would be a real delight if only we were allowed to get it. And he finishes by saying this, the thing just isn't there. What a great quote, huh? Let me finish with this question. Where have you been crucified? And where are you being crucified in your life? What is God doing to you and your passions and your desires and the shape of your heart and the way that you view him and the way that you live your life with him being the king of the universe. What is he doing in your life? What is he laying aside? What is he flattening out? What is he letting all the air out of? So that at first you kick and scream, but then you eventually go, oh, God's doing something right now. God is doing something right now. What am I not letting go of? What am I holding on for dear life? Because I'm convinced I can't live without this. What a cheery way to end the sermon, right? But listen, if we consider that the most joyful, listen, the most joyful human being that ever walked the earth was also the one who endured the greatest suffering, it changes how we see Jesus and how we see the life that we are called to in Jesus. A love-shaped death is what brings us into the joy of a cross-shaped life. It doesn't mean we look for ways to suffer. It means we look at our suffering in a new and a, and a redeemed way because Jesus is only ever calling us into the thing that will lead us to the place where he is able to be most seen and most known and embraced and loved. A love-shaped death leads to a cross-shaped life. But this is also where hope lives. This is what your life is meant to look like. This is what the church is meant to look like. Now, you all know I don't do a lot of yard work. Um, and honestly, the only reason for that is because I hate it. Um, but here's what's so strange and Melissa will confirm this if you think I'm lying. Um, I, I like raking leaves, it's crazy. I didn't, I didn't grow up with leaves, so I, I'm still kind of fascinated by them. Um, leaves were an Ohio addition to my life. And um, I like them, I don't know, I, I, I kind of wish we didn't have to rake them. Like they look so great on the ground. And I remember asking Melissa probably like, I don't know, a month ago, like why do we rake up all the leaves when it looks this awesome? And she goes, well, it kills the grass. I'm like, 
the leaves are prettier than the grass. You know, I don't, I still don't get the logic. So I rake leaves. I want to conform, right? It's the cruciform life, right? Um, but I like raking leaves. And when I say I like raking leaves, I wouldn't take that to mean that I would like to rake your leaves. Um, but the reason why I'm raking leaves at all is because my trees are experiencing a death. And that death will give way to a winter of bare branches that gives way to an anticipation of new life and new leafing in the spring. For there to be life, there must be death. But the cross-shaped life is not a death for nothing. It's what your life was meant to look like because it comes out of a love-shaped death. God lets the old leaves of your former life fall to the ground so that he can produce new, green, vibrant, healthy leaves. If we would just step into this life, if we would just step back and we would look at the ways that Christianity has become this sort of functional or dysfunctional identity in our lives, but Christ has almost been rinsed out of it. If we would only receive the life that Christ has for us, if we would only walk down the road that he walked and experience what he promised us, if we would only believe that what exists for us and is available for us in this life is the path to joy, how different would your life be? How different would my life be? How different would our conversations be on Sunday? If we would allow this love-shaped death to lead us down a cross-shaped life. It's possible because the Lord is good and his love is steadfast and his mercy is new every morning and his grace is abundant and his patience is wide. So let's pray that God would help us do that. Will you bow your heads with me? Lord, we thank you for the love-shaped death that Jesus died. But Lord, we pray for this cross-shaped life that it leads to, that it calls us to live out. And Lord, we admit to you that it doesn't sound enticing to us. We feel very uncomfortable with that wording. Some of us feel very scared even thinking about our lives and some of those things in our life that we aren't laying aside. So Lord, we pray that your spirit would draw us back to your love, back to your forgiveness, that your spirit would draw us to repentance. Lord, that we would not allow those things that we put all of our life into to become our life and become idols and choke out the joy that waits for us. So Lord, would you walk with us through these hard words? Would you allow us as we scatter today to be reflective, to pray, to feel your compassion, to, to receive your understanding, that you understand that these are hard things for us 
These are hard prayers for us to pray. These are hard steps for us to step out and take. But Lord, when we go back to the cross and we go back to the steps that you took for us on our behalf, Lord, our life and our heart and our worldview becomes transformed once again. We understand once again what it means for somebody to sacrifice because of love. And so, Lord, I pray that your spirit would change us, that it would convict us, that it would draw us to you, and that we would remember the price you paid and the life that waits for us as we receive that once again, accept it, and rejoice in it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.